do your research. Yeah, you need to research the business that you're going into. Sometimes you jump too fast and you don't know the uh, business and that's when you get frustrated. And so you need to do your research and the tools that are out here now. I mean, when I had my business, it was even less, but just think when I was coming up, we didn't have the internet on all of these tools available. So utilize these tools. Networking is super important. Know people in your business, get to know people in your business, get to know people that are doing a similar business, uh, benchmark, find out who's doing the best and learn what they did, discover how they did it and then do it better. Boss Uncaged is a bi-weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners as they become uncaged trailblazers, unconventional thinkers, untethered trendsetters, and unstoppable tycoons. We always hear about overnight success stories, never knowing that it took 20 years to become a reality. Our host, S.A. Grant, conducts narrative accounts through the voices and stories behind Uncaged Bosses. In each episode, guests from a wide range of backgrounds sharing diverse business insights. Learn how to release your primal success through words of wisdom from inspirational entrepreneurs and industry experts as they depict who they are, how they juggle their work life with family life, their successful habits, business expertise, tools, and tips of their trade. Release the uncaged boss beast in you. Welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boston Cage Podcast. On today's show, we have a special guest. I call her the Chief. Some people may know her as Wanda Dunham. Welcome to the show, Chief. Oh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So to people that don't know who you are, which is kind of hard to believe that some people don't know who you are, especially out of Atlanta, who are you? Well, my name is Wanda Dunham, formerly Wanda Gresham. But I was raised in Atlanta. I am a Grady baby. That means a lot to the Atlanteans. We distinguish ourselves whether you are a Grady baby or not. So I am a Grady baby. I am an original Georgia peach. Uh, Grew up here and went to school, went away to college, but came back to Atlanta and started working for MARTA in 2006. Worked my way up through the chain of command to become the first African-American and first female chief of the Marta Police Department. Nice. So, I mean, even with that, I mean, that's a hell of a feat to get to that level, not only just in the police department, but also in mass transit. So what did that journey really look like for you to kind of come up in Atlanta and to become the chief of police of Marta? So it's ironic because I remember my grandfather riding Marta every day to work. Um, My grandfather worked as a janitor for the Sears building on Ponce de Leon. And he rode Marta every day as a janitor and back and forth on Marta. And so we didn't really ride uh, Marta that much. I knew about it, but we just didn't go downtown that much because of the times that we lived in, you know, segregation. So it was interesting that when I was looking for a job, graduated from college, my grandfather was the one to suggest that I get a job at Marta. And I didn't know a lot about Marta. And he said, well, all of my friends and bus operators that he had known over the years, he said that Marta was a great company to work for. And I said, oh, okay, I'll give it a try. At that time, I had a degree 
uh, but no job. So I was willing to try just about anything. Well, I had a job, but I didn't have a really good job that I wanted. And so I said, I'll give Marty a try. Marty a try. I applied, never filled out an application. That's a little known fact. Uh, never <laughs> filled out an application until after I was finished the police academy, applied and went to the police academy and became a police officer. Now, there's a long road between the police officer and being the chief. And it was a lot of challenges, things that I had never done before. So it forced me to push myself and it was uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, it's not an easy road. It wasn't an easy road, but it was well worth it. With that, I mean, obviously this, this is the business podcast. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that even in the police department, and even as a chief, there's a lot of similarities with business and the structure of how you run things. Do you want to kind of touch bases on that a little bit to kind of explain that? Obviously, you were part of a corporate structure, but in that corporate structure, you learned a lot of business principles. Yeah. So I didn't realize that there were similarities. And it wasn't until I started being asked to speak at businesses. I was asked to speak at um, the Georgia Diversity Council to speak to them actually several times. Then I was asked to speak to the National Diversity Council. I was asked to do lean-in sessions for the Intercontinental Hotel Group, IHG. And at the end of these meetings, you know, I would just get up and talk about what I did as a police chief or police, the lessons that I learned as a police uh, chief and my role to be becoming a police chief. And the women that I was talking to, they were like, oh my God, we did not know that police had so many similarities to what we do in the corporate world. I did not either. And so when they started saying, oh, I can relate to this because this happened to me. And one of the stories I was telling uh, and I often tell is that when you're in a room and a lot of times I was the only female and the only African-American in the room and you come up with a good idea, which we're benchmarking, we're talking and we come up with a good idea and I would come up with a good idea and the room would be silent. Nobody would say anything. And then one of my colleagues who happened to be a male, a white male, they would say, hey, that's a great idea. So you sit there thinking to yourself, didn't I just say that? The women in the groups that I was talking to, they said, oh, my God, that happens to us all the time. I didn't realize that. And they didn't realize that what we did, what I did. And so what happens is that they were saying, you have to tell the story because for years, law enforcement has been such a closed, you know, closed off to the world. We don't usually talk about what we do. And it's just kind of cloaked in secrecy because we talk to one another. And so for me to open up to these women and to this these audiences, and they were saying, this has to be told because we did not know that this happened in, in your world. And I said, well, I didn't know it was happening in your world. And so it was kind of a natural progression. At first, they asked me to write this book. And I was thinking, okay, I didn't pay much attention and I didn't really think about it. And then as I continued to go, three or four more uh, groups, they were like, you have to write this book. And so I said, I think I have to write this book. Now, of course, I didn't have time when I was the chief. And so I recently retired in June, June 1st, and I had time to write this book. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's a solid segue to how you and I even got on the same accord, right? I mean, we have common denominators, but when you were talking about writing the book, when we first started to write your book, which was a few months back, essentially we wrote two books. We did. Yeah, we did. So, So let's talk a little bit more about 
the differences between the two books. Your first book is the one that you're going to be releasing. Well, actually, it's released now, right? It's yes, out yes. now, right? Yeah. So with that being said, my goal is to get that book to be a number one top seller. So let's go ahead and pitch that book and talk a little bit about the story behind that book and where the journey is going to take someone if they read that book. So the book is uh, Becoming Chief. That's the title, Becoming Chief, The Less Life Lessons Learned on the Road Less Traveled. So let me tell you how the nexus to Road Less Travel, it kind of came, the inspiration for that came from one of my favorite poets, Robert Frost, and it's the, in his poem, The Road Not Taken. And out of that, there's a lot of things that you go through as you're deciding what your journey will be. And so sometimes how you start is not always how you finish. And so definitely how I started was not how I finished. Little known fact, I did not want to be a police officer. I know people are like, but you're the chief. I did not know that that was my destiny to become a police chief. And so I went down this path thinking that I would only be at MARTA as a police officer for two years, and then I would go and do something else. Uh, God had other plans. And so that third, that two-year plan of mine turned into 34 years uh, working for MARTA. But it was my destiny, and I truly believe that's how I, I ended up there. So Behind the scenes, this book, I hope, and the early reviews are very positive. People, they have been very uh, supportive of the book. And it's very interesting because people want to email me and they've been texting me and saying, I can relate to this. I can relate to that. They've been sending me their own pictures of how they grew up. It's very encouraging. And that's really what I wanted. That was my vision for this book. I want to encourage people, male, female different nationalities. I think everybody can relate to the things that's in this book and it's lessons learned because sometimes it's how we grow up and you're thinking, okay, that's insignificant. That didn't mean anything, but all of these things. And so what we did in the book was to show how from the very beginning, when your parents are teaching you these life lessons and you go away to college and you deal with things in high school and then you go away to college and then you enter the workforce, all of those life lessons can actually benefit you. Don't think about it as, oh, you know, woe is me. It really is setting you up for what, you know, what God has for you to do in your life. And so you don't really know it. So you don't really think about it while you're on that journey. But as you sit back and reflect, you can say, wow, that's why I had to go through X, Y, Z. That's why I had to go through that. And if I could tell people one thing, uh, one thing that I wanted them to remember is a no doesn't necessarily mean not ever. It's just no for now. And so don't get discouraged when you hear no. You're going to hear a lot of no's. As you climb any kind of ladder, you'll hear a lot of no's. You know, it's definitely a, just a stumbling block not a, oh, well, I can't ever get that done. And you have to stay positive and you have to stay on your course. So with everything that you just said, it kind of opens up the Pandora's box to say that you're moving from being a police chief to essentially becoming an influencer and you're more so in personal development. Just talk about that a little bit. I mean, obviously in being a chief, you had an opportunity to help people. You had opportunity. And then in your book, you kind of talk about some of these things on your journey, how you, you help somebody get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. You also kind of hint to ETC model a little bit, right? Yeah. So you're moving more into a consultant role what does that journey look like coming from a corporate environment, moving into a consultant role, and you're using your book as the transitioning factor? Yeah, so it's new. It's a new space, right? And so having been a chief is so much different 
than being in the consultant space. But then that's what I did every day, really. I mean, you know, I, I gave people advice. I tried to help them. I tried to build leaders, people that work for me. I was strong, had a strong belief in professional development. I wanted to make sure that they go back and get additional training courses. I was really uh, insisting on education, making sure that they had all the tools that they need in their toolbox to be competitive in this space. And people are like, well, they were already police officers. Yes, but I wanted them to get promoted. I wanted them to know that there was life outside of being a police officer, but also the changing workforce. You know, we were dealing with a new demographic of police officers. And if you're not up on, you know, if you had honed in on some of your skills uh, about how to deal with millennials in the workforce, or I think it's one of the first times we've had multiple generations in the workforce. And we had the Nexters, the baby boomers, the millennials, the Zs, and XYZs. And so we had so many. And so you have a good leader will understand how to harvest all of those different generations and the different energies, the different the things that they bring to the table. And so they will harvest that in a different way. And uh, an informed leader will make sure that those folks are utilizing it in the best way. If people are not challenged, if they don't feel that they're uh, being heard, they don't feel that you care, then you'll lose people. So what I want to do in this book is, yeah, I may not be the police chief any longer, but I can still hopefully have an impact on new people or new leaders that are coming in to the, you know, that want to move up. Not just in the police department. I have several mentees. I mentor several people and they're not in the police department. And so I, uh, corporate America. So I think the mentoring is the same, no matter if you're in the police department or not. That's what I want to do. I want to encourage people, but you have to kind of get, you have to transition to that mod, to that model. It's been interesting. It's been a learning, especially writing the book. It was a lot harder than I thought. <laughs> and people, you know, you say, oh, well, I want to go and write a book. It's a lot different. And so, as you know, I started off on one path, which was doing a training, uh, kind of a self-help book. We will release that at some time. It was about what characteristics do you need as a good leader? And I think that's still needed. But I wanted to tell this story first. Because I think people need to understand where I came from. I wasn't just the chief, right? So I think they needed to understand a little bit about who I am and where I came from and to get to that spot. And so a lot of people are like, oh, well, she just always been a chief. That's the way they know me. So some of the feedback I've received from the book, they're like, oh, my God, we can't believe that you've ever been this vulnerable. This is not you. You had self-doubt, too? Yeah. They were like, oh, because we don't know you like that. They only know me as what they see, like decisive and quick and this done. And so there were a lot of surprised people when they read the book because I am vulnerable in the book. And that's a scary place to be. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I think people needed to see that so that they can uh, hopefully be encouraged that if I can do it, then they can do it as well. Yeah, I think it's definitely funny that you brought that up because, you know, I didn't grow up in Atlanta, but once I moved to Atlanta and riding Martyr, and I would see you on TV over the years, mm-hmm. like whether it was a news bulletin, something crazy happened, whatever it was. So to kind of know that person on television as like the pillar, the structure behind the entire transportation authority, and then to kind of help you write this book and to kind of hear mm-hmm. some of the stories. I mean, I think one of my favorite stories in the book was the VCR detective. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
and that was one of those things that is kind of like, well, it's a testament to who you are, but that's how you got there. So if you want to kind of just dive into like that particular chapter a little bit so people can understand, like, okay, you weren't always the chief, but you were always going to be the chief, even though you didn't know it. Exactly. I did not know it. And so that's what it goes back to the journey that life takes you on and how you end up. Because I had no idea that I was going to be a police officer even. And so I graduated from college, needed a job. And I was just taking a job to as a data entry clerk because I wanted to go on vacation and I didn't want to start a real job. And so I took this job thinking that I was done after a month or two. I left. I was gone. Went on vacation, came back, and they said, we want you to work full time. Really? So they offered me this job. And it was great because it was good money. and I could pay my bills. It allowed me to move out because I needed to move out. I wanted to move out. So I moved out and I said, well, I need some extra money. So I took this job at a retail store as a loss prevention officer. I didn't really know what a loss prevention officer did, but I figured, okay, it was about five minutes from my full-time job. So I said, I'll, I'll do that. Went to work and it was basically like uh, resting shoplifters, like catching shoplifters. <laughs> and, and she said, well, because you had a criminal justice degree, I guess she thought it was a natural progression. I had no idea that I would be arresting laws, uh, um, shoplifters in a retail store. So I went to work and really didn't know what I was supposed to do. She told me and my boss, she worked days. I worked nights. I really didn't get a lot of training. I said, well, I'll just go walk around and observe and learn what I'm supposed to do. I figured out that she thought I was doing a good job, whatever I was doing. So I was just being a visible presence. And then, yeah, I just started kind of just being observant and walking around. Nobody knew where I was. So that was good because she never got a chance to introduce me. I just started looking for things that I thought was interesting or different. Now, have it now. I need to set this up because I worked for a retail store before. And so I worked somewhere, you know, worked in retail, not at that store, not for that company, but I knew in general how things were supposed to go. And so when I went to work for this company, I was like, something's strange here. She left me a note. We would communicate. My boss left me a note and we would communicate via messages. And she said, oh, you know, we had a theft. We've had several VCRs stolen. Just keep a lookout for it. So I was like, okay. So I went back through the stock room. I saw three brand new VCRs that were out of the locked cage. And I thought, well, if they're having trouble with VCR thefts, why would they leave three brand new VCRs outside of a locked cage? They need to be more protected. So I zeroed in on that and I thought, well, okay, I don't know. I just don't think it was one of those gut feelings. I didn't think this was right. So I went upstairs in the stock room and I just started looking at what was going on with the VCRs. An employee came, picked up the VCRs, threw them in a trash can, a big bucket, and took it out on the dock. And I thought, that doesn't look good. Went out there. So I said, okay. After he left, I went back and looked at our cameras, and I couldn't see what he did. So I was like, oh, where are the VCRs? I knew they were missing. I didn't know where they were. And I didn't want it to be my fault that these three VCRs were missing. So I went back to the stock room, went out on the dock where I saw him, and he I couldn't find the VCR. I'm like, okay, it's in the dumpster. Then I couldn't find them. I looked in the dumpster, couldn't find them. Just as I turned around, the three VCRs were underneath the dumpster. So I thought, oh my goodness. So I ran back, called my boss. My boss used to be the uh, one county police officer. And so she called her husband. She was retired. She called her husband, who was still a 
Gwinnett County police officer. And he sent some plainclothes folks over to watch these VCRs. The employee and a friend, about an hour, hour and a half later, after the store closed, came back and got the VCRs and put them in the trunk. It was just like a movie. All of these police officers moved in, they made their arrest, and I got credited for breaking up a really big VCR uh, theft ring that had basically been hitting all of the retail stores. It was like my first two weeks at work. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is pretty good. You know, I got uh, employee of the month. They offered me a full-time job and they gave me a bonus check. So that's how I became a VCR detective. Gotcha. So, I mean, the reason why I ask that question, because Every single time like we read parts of the book you, that you don't even realize on your end is that you get extremely excited talking yeah. about these topics, right? <laughs> yep. So <laughs> in addition to that accolade, I mean, why don't you just give us a little bit list of like, what other things, I mean, obviously you've been in Ebony Magazine, like what other things have you done in, in the past 30 years of being a chief? Wow. So I really had a really good career at MARTA. And so I'm thankful for that. One of the things that I really concentrate on, I really have a love for the community any kind of community engagement. I've been recognized by several organizations. The National Black Law Enforcement uh, Officers uh, gave me a community outreach um, uh, plaque. I've been recognized by Ebony for being the first African-American and the first uh, female chief of a 400-person police department with the ninth largest. And so Ebony reached out to us and said, hey, we understand we have a person that's uh, breaking the mold and basically breaking barriers. And so we want to do this story. In 2006, I was featured in Ebony Magazine, did not know it, was in the airport. And they said, we may or may not do the story. We didn't know. I was promoted in May, and I think it came out in September, August and September edition. I didn't even know it. We just happened to be in the airport. And my son was flipping through mag- the Ebony magazine and said, Mom, this is you. <laughs> so they never called me. So, of course, I bought every one of the hat on the stand. <laughs> so, I kept, of course, you got to give your parents one. It was pretty exciting, but I wish I could have gotten the best notice. So I've been recognized by just Women's Transportation uh, Group for diversity. At one time, I had every key role in my department were females. And so people were like, oh, you know, you have so many females. No, I had the best qualified people. And so I wasn't purposely trying to fill those roles with police, with uh, females, but they were the best qualified. And so we, we ran a really good uh, ship and they were held accountable just like everybody else, but they did a really good job for me. And so I appreciated that. I've been so many, too many to talk about, but I've just really been, you know, a lot of community engagement a lot of leadership engagement, a lot of awards for leadership, and then, of course, just being uh, recognized for diversity and inclusion, which is really a big thing today. With all those things, we always hear about the 20 years that it takes someone to be a, a success story that seems to be an overnight success. And earlier on, you were saying that everybody always known you as the chief. Talk about your journey. I mean, so we're talking about 20 years. How long did it take you to actually get into the role of being chief and then where are you right now as far as being post-chief? Yeah, so I had been at MARTA 19 years before I became chief, but I worked my way up through the chain of command. I didn't come in as chief. I worked my way up from an officer, starting walking the beat, just like everybody else. And then I went to the next level and then that next level. So the hierarchy 
is a lot. It's the chief, there's a corporal, the sergeant, a lieutenant, a captain, a major, an assistant chief, and then the chief. And so there's a lot of rings that you have to go through. Now, keep in mind, I didn't go in thinking that I was going to be the chief. And so every level, I was just trying to do the best job. And I think that's what people should see or should think about is that when you get a job, you should just be the best that you can be in whatever that role that you're currently, that space that you're in. And so that I was trying to learn because I didn't know a lot about being a police officer. And so as a police officer, especially working for Marta, they gave us a free pass because you get the free pass to ride. And I didn't really know a lot about Marta because I, I didn't know about the trains and that kind of thing or the bus route. But I wanted to be the best officer that I could be. I'm in this role, so I got to be the best officer. So on my off days, I would just come out and just ride the buses. And I would ride the train and just familiarize myself with where I was going and what happens on this route. All of the buses, I memorized all of the bus routes that came out of what stations. I knew how two ways to get to every call, every station. Just because, and that's just me. That's my time, you know, my own time. Nobody told me to do it, but I needed to be the best that I could be. And I didn't know a lot about it, but I was going to work harder, harder than anybody to try to find out. And I think that's what people think, oh, well, you know, she got promoted because she was friends with somebody. No, I mean, I got promoted because I earned it, number one, but also I worked harder than anybody else to get it. I put in work and that's what people don't want to do. Some people don't want to do you can't wait for a handout. You got to be willing to do what it takes. And so I was just always willing to do what it took to, to get there. If it was a training class, I would go and take some, you know, take some additional training classes so I can put myself in a better position myself for that next promotion. So what's one thing that you would do differently if you could do it all over again? Ooh, wow. <laughs> That's a good question. So, you know, I don't know. I don't think I would do anything different because I, I really uh, learned from everything that I did, mm-hmm. even though I thought that I didn't want to be a police officer once I got into it, because it really allowed me to do what I love best. Right. Serve the public and help people. So I thought, well, I could do this in law enforcement. And so the things that you see on television, and I know law enforcement has changed and law enforcement officers have a bad rap. I still think that law enforcement is an honorable position and profession. And I wouldn't change that for anything. I think I did really good based on, I did some good. I mean, there was a kid on my beat that was always late. I was at the west side of town and he was always late for school. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so we had a truancy thing where, you know, we would check for kids that were just hanging out at the station. And so I stopped this little boy and I said, you know, why are you always late? And he goes, I can't get up on time. I was like, you can't get up on time. So I said, okay, let me go to your house. So I took him to his house. He was, grandma was raising him with four other siblings. I said, ma'am, I said, he comes to the station late every day. I, and I know the school must be calling you. And she said, yeah, they do. And I said, well, you know, why is he late? She said, well, he didn't have an alarm clock. And I was like, he didn't have an alarm clock. Well, okay. Now, of course, this is before cell phones and, you know, everything is on your cell phones now. But we took him to the store and uh, two officers and, and bought him an alarm clock. And he wasn't late for school anymore. We set it for him. And we told him how to use it. 
We told grandma, you know, this is what we were doing. And he wasn't late for school. So it's those little things that you can do to affect somebody's outcome that I probably wouldn't have had a chance to do had I not been a police officer. So Mm -hmm. this kind of makes you feel good that you can affect change. You know, everyone doesn't have to be arrested. They don't have to go to jail for you to affect change. And so we learned that lesson. And that's what I tried to impart on the officers that work for me is that everybody doesn't have to go to jail. Let's see if we can get somebody some help. You got a person that needs alcohol treatment, then you take them to the alcohol treatment center. So you try to get them some help. If the person is hanging out at the station, you take them to the homeless shelter. So looking at how, you know, you know you have to enforce the law. You can't have people in the station, but you can also do something to try to help find another way, another alternative to putting them into the criminal justice system. Let's try to help them. Even with that, right? I mean, I think part of that is part of your upbringing right? Coming from the roots that you came in. So this is a two-part question. Do you come from an entrepreneurial background? Like, is anybody in your family have those kind of roots? And in addition to that, outside of the entrepreneurial side effect, what in your background gave you the initiative to be as caring as you are? Because considering that as a police person, we always see police as very stringent, very cut and dry. There is no gray space, but you just alluded to, there is some room for gray space in there. So if you don't mind kind of touching on those two topics. Yeah. So being entrepreneurial, it's kind of like just trying to do the best that, you know, like motivated, you know, it's like, okay, I see a need, let me go and do it. And so I definitely didn't have any training growing up in being entrepreneurial. Uh, You know, I just wanted to make sure that I could do, you know, it's like, okay, there's a need, what can I do to, to affect change? And so, you know, it was like, okay, let me think about how I can be of service and how I can help. I didn't have any person per se to say, okay, this is what you do. And I have a business and this is what you do, but I'm an avid reader. You know, I like to research. I try to see a need and I can do it. I had actually started my own business several years ago. I saw a need because uh, my, grand- my grandparents were getting older and I saw a need for home health care. And so my husband and I started our first business. It was called Helping Hands Home Care Business. It was a lot of work, but just I would go out and meet the uh, clients. And then I, ha- I hired a director to run the day to day. But it was a lot. You know, I was still working at that time. I just saw just a need for people who were kind of caught. They were not really sick. And they could live alone. They didn't need to go in a nursing home, didn't have a lot of family. And I saw, what would I do if my grandparents needed that type of care? Mm-hmm. And so we started that business and it was very successful. And we sold the business. It was a nurse that was retiring and she actually purchased the build a business from us. And so it was a rewarding business. And I was so happy that she took the business because I, it was like your baby. And I wanted to turn it over to somebody who I knew would take care of my clients. And so that was kind of my first uh, business. And then being a consultant is just normal. That is what I do, telling people and advising people and helping people. And so that's kind of a natural progression since I've been retired. And I knew I wasn't going to sit down. So I knew there was more work for me to do. I'm not finished yet. And so there's a lot of things that I can do. And this is just the beginning. But writing a book was definitely uh, a challenge. (laughs) 
So, and then the other part of that question was like, okay, so your caring side, like, where did that come from? I mean, obviously, some people would say their mom, some people would say their dad, some people would say their family background. Like, where did that, again, because coming as a police officer, you have to be Mm -hmm. very strict and rigid. Where did that gray space come in at? Yeah, so, and I think all of the above. So, my mom, my grandparents, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. Growing up, we went to church a lot. We were in church. Every day, pretty much not. We're in church, it felt like every day. But we would go to church twice on Sundays. We'd go early in the morning. We sometimes we started Sunday school. And so I think it was uh, my Christian background. And then my mom basically just saying, you know, you have to uh, look at the reasons behind something. We had a um, one of our neighbors, and, and I talked about it in the book. She would, on Halloween, we would have to go to her house. And she would give us fried egg sandwiches for Halloween. And we were like, fried egg sandwiches? Now, she was, my mom's like most mothers, right? When you finish trick-or-treating, your parents come and check the candy to make sure that, you know, that it's safe and everything. And so it was a fried egg sandwich wrapped in aluminum foil. And so my mom would get the sandwiches. And so it was always the first thing to go. Was, you know, she would throw it out and say, don't eat that. But, you know, we were like, so, Mom, why do we have to keep going to her house if you know that we're not going to eat it? And she goes, well, she's lonely. She lives alone. Uh, nobody comes. She has cats. But, you know, nobody would come and visit her. And so she had shared with my mom that that was one of the highlights of her year is to see the kids and to see us come over. She didn't have a lot of money. She was on welfare. And she used her uh, rations from welfare, the eggs and milk and cheese and all of that, then bread. And so she would make, all she had to give us was their fried egg sandwiches. And so I learned empathy from that because I fet sorry for her. And knowing the behind the scenes often makes it explain why she did what she did. And so we continued to go as long as we lived there. And I was always kind of like gave her extra time and it was kind of extra chatty because I just wanted to make everybody feel good. And that was just kind of, you know, me. That was who I was. Now, I'm also a big uh, by the book kind of rules person, right? I'm a typical type A. It's like I'm really structured. And so how do you bring empathy into being disciplined? So you have to find I compartmentalize things, right? I'm by the book. And so police officers, we have a huge binder of things and rules and regulations that you have to go by. I look at those things and then I try to bring in the empathy. Everybody makes mistakes. And I realize that. Don't make the same mistake over and over and over again, because it's not a mistake. It's a choice at that point. But I want to make sure that I try to give people a second chance and I bring them in personally and talk to them. I would talk to them about why we were here and what do they think, you know, I should do. And this is what the policy says. Blah, blah, blah. Hopefully it will change the way that they, you know, the outcome of what they did in their career. And so I was able to bring a little bit into that. But I think one thing people can say or two things people can say is that I was always fair and consistent. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. With that. Right. So you're also a big family person as well. I am. So how do you juggle your work life with your family life? Yeah. So. My husband's a police officer, too. We met in the police academy. A lot of people are like, oh, my God, how do you do? How do you, you know, that work-life balance? And how do you juggle being a chief of police, a wife, a mother? 
it takes some do it juggling. But my husband was very supportive. You have to start with a supportive spouse. And you have to, what I call, build your village, right? You have to build your support village. We couldn't do it alone. And my husband was like, he took a different shift so that he chose to work at night, like 11 at night to 7 in the morning. I worked 8.30 to 5. And so we called it baby swap. I would get the baby ready, take him to my husband, who may or may not be off on time. He was supposed to be off at 7. He got a late call. I'm stuck with the baby, so I have to, I have to hold on to the baby. We were very lucky. We had people, everybody, we, I said my support village. People, we had radio operators. We had secretaries. They said, we'll take care of it. We had a really good support village. And then, of course, my mom. I mean, I went back to school for my master's when my son was five. It was a challenge. And now when it was out of town. So I didn't go to like Georgia State. I went to Columbus State and it was like an hour and a half drive. So I went out of town, had to stay there during the week. But my husband would, would meet me halfway with the baby at night and uh, so we could have dinner while I was gone. And I could also check his homework because I wasn't sure my husband was making sure he was doing his homework. And so that control factor came in. I was like, I got to make sure he's doing his homework. Now he's only five. I get that. But I wanted to make sure that he was doing all of the things that he was supposed to do. Plus he needed to see his mom and I needed to see him. So. Yeah. It's funny that you brought up both your husband and your son, right? So I don't want to give too much away, but if when you get your hands on the book, I want people to kind of read the chapter. It's called Military Grade Shine. And it kind of talks about the story about how they met and how yeah. he knew she was single. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you want me to talk about that? No, 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 no. no. Like, you got you to gotta leave a little bit to the imagination, right? So you, you got to yes. leave that. And also the, the whole Trans Am thing. So, I mean, obviously reading the story, you know exactly what I'm talking about once you read that particular yep. chapter. Absolutely. So, I mean, going into like your morning habits, obviously you're, you're very structured, right? You're almost militant to a certain extent. So what is your morning routines? And it's funny because like you and I, like we'll be working on stuff and you'll send me a message like 10 o'clock at night. I'll send you a message back five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. And nine out of 10 times, we both always respond no matter what time we send this yeah. message. Yeah. Going. So what's your morning routines look like? So before, of course, before I retired, having for 34 years, having to be responsive, you know, I carry two cell phones. I'm up texting. I make to-do lists. I'm truly, everything to-do list, everything is structured, timelines. I would send my husband, what people don't know, is that he saved a lot of people from receiving text messages from me at four or five o'clock in the morning. So what he would do is like, please don't send it to him at five o'clock in the morning because people think they have to respond at, you know, when you send it. And so I was like, well, I'm just sending, I was sending it because I needed to get it off of my to-do list. And he was like, yeah, but they think that you want them to respond. So what I was started doing, and because of my husband, I would go ahead and type them up and then schedule them to shoot to be sent at seven o'clock. So I saved a lot of people. He saved a lot of people and he kept me grounded because he was like, okay, just don't send it to him. And so a lot of people, I, they have him to thank for not receiving text messages. But I wanted them to just, when I think of things, I have to send them out because it mentally, it gets off my checklist. And so that's what, that's what we do. What are we doing now? It, I still have that responsiveness. It's only been like six, seven months. So, you know, I'm so used to responding uh, quickly. We do talk about, you know, we have like checklists, like, okay, this is what we're thinking. And then you want things done. And so we're so alike about schedules and structure and making sure that all of these things are done. And that's a good, I think that's a good habit to have 
I still think it's very valuable because if you write things down, you get them done. For me, whether it's on my phone or in, in paper and pencil, I'm old school. I wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning and I'm on my side of the bed with the little light and I'm typed in and he said to do list. Like, okay. And he turned over and go back to sleep because I needed to, he knows I need to get it out because if I don't, I'm thinking about it all night. The wheels are turning and I don't want to forget it for that next morning. So hmm. it works. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you see yourself in, in 20 years from now? Wow. Really retired, hopefully um, as an author, which is kind of an interesting space. You know, most people are like, you're an author. And I think you told me, it's like, well, you know, you're an author now. And I was like, I don't feel like an author. Um, and I didn't see myself as an author. And then when, you know, people's response or reaction to the book, they're like, wow, you know, you're an author now. And I was like, okay. So when I get New York Times bestseller, then I'll feel like an author. But now I'm enjoying this process. This is so new. And I like challenging myself. Whatever I can come up with uh, in between now and in 20 years, that's what I'll do. I like whatever I can do to help people. And so if it's some type of service that I can be, I love to volunteer for nursing homes and kids. They're my passion. So doing some type of volunteerism, you know, staying active and hopefully just um, playing with grandkids. Uh, I hope my son sees this. <laughs> but twenty, but ten more, ten more years, he'll be good. <laughs> he just put you on the spot, Jordan, man. Just, just out of nowhere, just like that. <laughs> ten more years, though. Yeah, I was saying he's hustling right now. He's he's building his yes. own everything else. So I don't know if he wants to have any kids right now. <laughs> no, he does. He definitely does not. And he's an entrepreneur. And I think it's interesting because my husband says he said Jordan doesn't even know where he gets that from. You know, he gets that entrepreneur spirit from you. He decided he wanted to sell, um, have a brand and sell clothing items. And so instead of saying, no, 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 I told my, I told uh, somebody, I said, you know, I'm, I'm packing T-shirts, I'm folding T-shirts, we're making labels. I mean, you know, my house was like a factory. We're at the kitchen table and I'm helping him and my husband going, oh, I thought this was his business. I said, yeah, but I'm his village. So, you know, I'm helping him. But I did too. Well, once he met with you, I mean, you told him a smarter way to do it. Thank you. But I didn't mind helping him because, you know, I wanted him to see what it's like to have his own business. And he's had a business in college, party promoting. But um, this was a brand different thing. But it's good to see something that he was interested in, that he was excited about. And if I could help and it, it didn't cost me a lot of money, I, I was there for him. So, I mean, this is another good segue to what words of wisdom would you have? I mean, obviously you're living with a new entrepreneur that's growing up in the ranks, kind of, you've seen him as a child, you've seen him go to college, you kind of see what it's like afterwards, he's starting his own business. What words of insight would you have for someone coming out of college on their journey? What would you tell them? Yeah, do your research. Yeah, you need to research the business that you're going into. Sometimes you jump too fast and you don't know the uh, business and that's when you get frustrated. And so you need to do your research and the tools that are out here now. I mean, when I had my business, it was even less, but just think when I was coming up, we didn't have the internet on all of these tools available. So utilize these tools. Networking is super important. Know people in your business, get to know people in your business, get to know people that are doing a similar business. Uh, benchmark, find out who's doing the best and learn what they did, discover how they did it 
and then do it better. That's definitely solid words of advice. So, I mean, just go ahead and, and drop the name of the book again and a website that they can kind of get in contact with you. Okay. So, of course, it is the, this is a part one of a two or three part series. We haven't decided yet, but this is part one. And so, uh, Becoming Chief, uh, Life Lessons Learned on the road, let's travel. And then this next part, because people, when they read the book, they're like, okay, where's the next part? Where's the next part? We talked about that because this next book is going to be, part volume two is going to be talking about the 14 years that I was chief. So we had to set the table and we built the foundation. And this first book, Becoming Chief, is just that. Who am I? Who was I? How did I get to be a chief? All of those life lessons, ups and downs, and how your upbringing sometimes define or just defines who you are and who you become and how successful. And then the people that you meet along the path that God puts in your way and puts in your path to help you. And it could be temporary. You might not ever see these people again, but mm. it's like all of these things is truly just kind of go together to build out the perfect will that God has for your life. And you don't even know it. And, you know, you don't even think about, you know, I had a, the captain who, when I had talked myself out of taking a leadership role and his little five minutes with me in, in his office encouraged me to go for a leadership role. Now, had he not been there, had, he could have cared less and said, well, she don't want to put in this on her. But by him spending time with me and kind of being that influencer, to say, you're ready for a leadership role. I didn't see that in myself, but he saw it in me. And so I'm thankful for him for being who he was to take time to say, you know, you're ready for this leadership role. So so people like that along the way that you don't even think about that God put there. And then you build off of that and you go and it's like, hmm, okay. But, and I talk about in the book, you know, having to deal with a whole experience of well, dealing with mean girls in high school it was interesting because you think, oh my God, it was, the, it was the end of, you know, especially being in high school, you're thinking, oh, it's horrible. But it really helped me as I was becoming a police officer, how to deal with cut rude customers, how to deal with people who may have been envious, uh, you know, as co-workers. And so it helps you, it prepares you because you've already dealt with this, you know how to deal with it. So that's what this book is. The next book will be about being the chief. That's a different roller coaster. So I tell people all the time, they say, oh, you broke through the glass ceiling, you know, of becoming a female chief. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, the journey starts. That's where the journey begins, right? It starts all over again because now you have to stay a chief and you have to deal with a whole set of issues that I never dealt with as an officer because the buck stops with me. And so it's a lot, a lot of responsibility. And so you have to be ready for being sued or people blaming you for things that you didn't even do. You weren't even there, but because you're the chief, you know, now you have to respond to that. And as you alluded to, yeah, I was on TV a lot because people wanted to hear from the chief. I can send four or five public information folks out there and then they'll still request, we want to hear from the chief. Mm -hmm. And knowing when as a chief, you should speak. Because you shouldn't always speak uh, as the chief because there's certain certain times that is reserved for the chief. And in certain situations, if I'm out there all the time, then it waters down the message. 
But if I come, then you know that it's serious. Just understanding that that and how to have your message go out without always being on camera, but getting the work done and building your base and building your supporters is so important. It's so important. So all of those lessons uh, will be talked about in book two and it's coming for 14 years of just being an officer and thinking, really thinking that because I had been internal, I was already hired and I knew everything about our department. Being the chief was going to be easy because I already knew absolutely the wrong uh, message. And so I learned a lot, stressed a lot. I was intentional about trying to do the best job that I could do. And I think I had a pretty successful career, but it's all about who you surround yourself with and making sure that you just stay relevant, just staying relevant. So that I'm looking forward to that. I really hope people will purchase this book. And other than the people that's already purchased it, please go out and buy one for your mama, your sister, or anybody that you think that would benefit from the book. And the message is, is that you too, in your own way, no matter what you're dealing with, you too can build your own success story. And whatever that is for you, didn't have to be my success story. It doesn't have to be the path that I chose. It didn't have to be college. It can be whatever you feel is right for you. You could be starting a business. But hopefully these life lessons that I've learned and I talk about in the book will help you on your path. So, I mean... I think you brought up a lot of good different points just about like the book and just about the content in the book. If you don't mind, just touch bases a little bit about like the journey of developing the book. Like I think you and I worked on it extensively. It's been like, I don't know, like four, five, six months at this point in time yeah. around the clock at certain times and certain times, you know, we had a week or two, where we had some grace period to kind of make some edits and stuff like that. So just go ahead and touch bases on that a little bit. What people don't know is, is that we started writing, we talked about it. We started writing one book. We started probably February. We, we were going to write a different book. And so about June, I had this epiphany and I said, like, I don't want to write that book. The book was 85% done. <laughs> it was 85% finished. It was completed. Almost 85% besides editing. I think it was pretty much done. And I couldn't do it. It was in my spirit. I needed to write a different type of book. So the pivot, and you guys were very good about pivoting. And said, okay, well, what do we need to do? This is a totally different book. I said, this is the book that I was led to write. I got to write this one. And so we pivoted and we had to really change, the, change our, you know, the style of book, you know, we were going to write. So then we had to start over, basically. And I think we started over in June, July, I think July. Mm-hmm. And so from July to now, we've been working around the clock. So the good thing about writing a book is you made it easy because you said, okay, you got to have an outline. Do an outline about everything that you want to put in the book. And so they were like, once I did my outline, you said, these become your chapters. And then you go back and once y'all approve the chapters and you said, go back and fill it in. And it really made it an easier process because I had no idea how to write a book. And so you said, it's really easier than you think. You just kind of fill in the chapters and they'll the book and write itself. Once I did that and I got into building these chapters, And then we had back and forth about, should this go in? Should that go in? Should this come in, come out? These stories. What then from being a police, being in law enforcement, Mm -hmm. we're very cut and dry, right? Just the facts. Mm -hmm. The thing that was difficult for me was tapping into my feelings and expressing them in the book. So you were like, 
you you got to say what you were feeling when you saw this. And I'm like, uh, yeah. So I would just basically say, yeah, we went to a call and there was a person there. You know, and you were like, Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like, okay, you have to go back and tell us a little bit more about this and talk about how it made you feel. Talk about, that's something totally police, we don't tap into that, right? It was difficult. So I had to tap into a whole new feeling. I mean, I had to express those feelings that we normally don't express in law enforcement and in my line of work. So I had to go back and talk about all of those things. And it really brought up a lot of feelings. And in the book, I say, this was cheaper than therapy, uh, writing this book, because <laughs> I got all of my issues out. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and it was so, I, hey, I, and it didn't cost me much. So, yeah, it's a good process. A lot to learn, just about publishing. And you think you just write a book and then it's done. But, you know, formatting and book covers and photo shoots and all of that was uh, different. But step by step, you you guys let me through it. And I think that's what made it a lot easier than having to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. We definitely had a good time. And to your point, the particular thing that you're talking about was, I think by you opening up, it made the book 10 times better. And and to your credit, I mean, all the references you're getting and the reviews you're getting right now are all because the nuances that people didn't know that the stories that you experience, the emotions behind it. And I think that's what really made the book more of, um, because to your point, it was more clinical before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like boot cut and dry. You know, you're like, uh, they don't really know what you're feeling. So I had to go back and tap into that, but I have never tapped into it before. But, you know, you got pulled it out and that was good. You know, you recognize that we needed to go deeper and not just surface level. And so I had to dig into that. And so it really made it easier once we got that or, you know, how did it make you feel? And y'all was in the back, like, how do you make you feel when this happens? Like, um, I, well, yeah, I didn't have a feeling. I didn't, think, I didn't think about that. So I had to go back and dig deeper and it was good. So then, you know, then of course it's the editing and the proofreading and the formatting. And then it's a progression and it's a step, but it's a, it's a good process. And I would definitely highly recommend. I think when people saw that I wrote this book, they were like, oh my God, we want to write a book. We've always wanted to write a book, but we just didn't know how to get started. And so I think there's books in everybody, right? There's something that people can share, they can tell, but they just don't know how to get started. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're definitely right about that. So, I mean, going into the bonus questions, right? Uh This is like the fun part for me, right? Yeah. If you could spend 24 hours with anybody dead or alive, who would it be and why? Wow. Mm. Well, I know this is kind of cliche, but I think Oprah Winfrey, just because I respect Oprah and Mm. I know her story, she's been open and told her story. And so truly her story was (laughs) a lot of challenges. And so she worked her way up as an African-American woman in a male-dominated industry, broadcasting and having very few women that look like her, women of color Mm. that look like her, and to build herself up to being a billionaire. My hat's off to her. And I watch her master classes, and I always get something out of them. No matter how successful or whatever I've done, I can always find something that, you know, I can say, oh, wow, this is good. This is good, a good nugget of information that I could use going forward. And so I would just like to pick her brain and to just ask her 
when did you know that you were going to make it? And she probably would say she probably didn't know until she made it, I'm assuming, because she was probably just trying to go through mm-hmm. and do it and just get into the next level and get to the next level. And then at this, she was there. But it was hard work. I'm sure it was hard work. And a lot of behind the scenes that we probably don't know. But I would just like to pick her brain. Yeah, I mean, I think Oprah is a great choice. I mean, I wrote about Oprah in my first book, a whole case study on her and just studying her life and and understanding everything you're saying is 100% true. I would think that even till today, I don't think that Oprah still thinks she's made it. And hence why she keeps on achieving more and more and more. She's always on that climb. And so, I mean, she's a multi-billionaire at this point, but in her mind, it's probably, it's nothing to her because she's still on her journey. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think she's humble and probably feels that she didn't deserve it. Just because of her bringing, it's kind of like mine, where in the church, you were taught not to be prideful and, you know, that if you you struck, you stumble. So you can't be bragging about these things. And it was almost like you were taught not to, not to to expect success. But when you got success, you shouldn't brag about it. Uh, and I thought it was interesting. People would say, well, uh, you're very shy. And I was like, I'm definitely not shy. But I think they'll see when I get to book two, how my voice has changed and how my experiences change and who I had grown to be as a leader because they don't see that side in the early part of my story. But as I got to the new role, I think I developed my voice, which is probably not heard in the first book as much. Yeah, and it goes to the point, leaving the first book as a cliffhanger, right? I mean, setting it up to understand that this book stops at a particular point and it's going to lead directly into the next book. It's essentially, it's like a lifetime movie. Split up it into- is, yeah. Yeah, without it being 700, uh, 800 pages, right? Because it was getting long and we said we need to cut it off. But I think it was a good place to stop and then go to the next section because 14 years have been achieved is totally different, different experiences that I want to share with people. And those those life lessons are totally different than the first book. So what was the second question? Uh, oh, superhero. Of course, I want to be Wonder Woman. I mean, you know, I'm already her. No, I, I like Wonder Woman because of the strength. She, too, was a woman that people didn't think that, you know, she could achieve. Uh, she came from male-dominated, you know, everything was male-dominated. And, you know, she's a superhero and you don't have that many females as a superhero. So I think I embody Wonder Woman just because I think that, you know, she can, she's achieved a lot Hmm. from uh, by being a female in a male-dominated industry of superheroes. Gotcha. I mean, I, I can definitely see that. I mean, plus you're an A-type personality. So if you didn't say Superwoman, I'd have been scratching my head like, do you have a split personality? Like, what's going on? Like, No, that's who I am. It served me well to be in my career choices, but it has served me well to make sure that things are the way they're supposed to be. And I can't change that at this point. So it is who it is. Who it, is. it is what it is. Cool. Cool. So usually at the end of the podcast, I usually give whoever I'm interviewing opportunity to ask me any questions. So the microphone is yours. What type of client would you say I have been one of the, uh, out of, out of, <laughs> a scale of one to 10, am I the worst or the best? I need to know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Put it me on the spot. Uh, but as far as you're definitely not the worst client. 
<laughs> oh, that's good. Thank you. Thank you're definitely not the worst client. But I mean, getting into who you are, I knew you was going to be an A-type personality. And I also knew that I couldn't back down at any point. If I showed you any weakness at all on this journey, you would have completely cut my legs off at my knees and been walking around with me with a leash. <laughs> so I had to stand my ground at every yeah. single time. Yes, yes, you did. Yeah, oh, yeah. You were like, okay, this is why I have to do this. But I'm like, okay, you tell me why. I need explanations. I need communication. I need back and forth. And so I think we kind of balance off of each other, but it's a good experience. But I was like, he probably thought, why is she doing this? <laughs> and I'm like, um, I got a really a text was, do not touch the pictures anymore. I'm like, okay, I'm in trouble. I'm in the doghouse. <laughs> but when I see things that need to be done, I just go in and do it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's one of those things I have to kind of, kind of control myself sometimes because it's like, oh, like, oh man, like our system is being broken. If the system is broken, then it's going to cause a train reaction of things that are going to go negative. So I'm trying to wheel it back in. So like, anytime I, I got to reach out to a client, I'm like, just please don't do this anymore. It's because behind the scenes, there's probably things that you don't know about that could potentially go wrong because of that. And the pictures were one of them, right? So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was fine. I was like, oh, my God. But I didn't know. So those are the kind of things. I, I'll jump on something because I was like, oh, it needs to be done. And then I was thinking, okay, I didn't know what you were doing over here. So, But it, it's definitely been a give and take. It's been a good process. And for book two, we got it. I think we got it. We got. We have a good understanding. So I think book two will be, uh, be easier. Now, of course, everybody has read, that's read book one. They're like, when is book two coming out? I said, you had to ask my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the funny thing is, is, is I was looking at our publishing company is kind of like the intermediate publishing. It's kind of we're not the big house publishers and we're not like the one shot publishers. So mm-hmm. we take people that want to publish their own books and get you ready to become a larger publisher. Right. Yeah. So with book two and book one, I mean, the goal is uh, book one is going to become a top seller and the goal is I want to kind of get you on TV shows and, and get you out there with some PR. And then I want to see book three, book four, book five, potentially be through a large publication to where you can kind of get more of a, a global footprint. But this is yes. just a jumping stone to kind of get you in that space. And now you understand the procedures. Now you understand behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. 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 So when you're dealing with a, yeah, with a large do. publisher, it's going to be completely different. Wow. You're going to be like, oh, that's what he was talking about. Okay, oh, now yeah. I get it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. So please, uh, WandaDunham.com is my email address and my website. So my website is up. So please take a look at it. And we're going to have some book signings. Just because of COVID, they were a little delayed. But go to my website and look for future book signings. I would love to see everybody there. And I would love to hear your feedback. So hit me up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also when you go to her website, you also want to sign up for her newsletter so you kind of follow her and see what's going on. All right. Yeah. People don't realize newsletters are, are the key to success. So make sure you sign up for that. I definitely appreciate you taking the time at your busy schedule. And I mean, obviously you got a million things going on and businesses going on, business ventures on top of books, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I appreciate it. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncage. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to become an Uncaged Trailblazer. If this podcast helped you, please email me about it. Submit additional questions you would love to hear me ask our guests and or drop me your thoughts at asksagrant.com. Post comments, share, hit subscribe, and remember to become a Boss Uncaged 
you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful book, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.sagrant.com slash boss uncaged.